Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, we're joined by Karen Hawkins. Karen is a longtime journalist, a story editor for The 19th. She's also a board member for the NLGJA, the Association of LGBTQ Journalists, of which Karen is one. Additionally, she's the founder and rebel-in-chief of Rebellious Magazine, which delivers a unique feminist perspective on Chicago news, politics, and culture. She's also the former co-publisher and co-editor-in-chief of the Chicago Reader. We could do the whole episode on that for sure. There are a lot of other things that we can bring up, including a mental health podcast that we'll get to later. But for now, hi, Karen. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely, Mark. Hello. It's so good to be here. So what's your journalism origin story that led to all this? So the way I like to couch this is that journalism runs in my blood. So on my dad's side, my grandfather worked for the post office, but used to write these beautiful essays. And when they got published, he would hang them on the wall. And then I have a first cousin who is also a journalist who is a copy editor before I was a copy editor. And I kind of followed them into the industry. And then on my mom's side of the family, I like to say they're all just like really nosy and gossipy and that like, <laughs> I am no, I get to be nosy for a living. Really what journalists are, are nosy for a living. And so there you have it. So the 19th did a piece with Staff Reflections of Black History Month, and you wrote about your mother growing up in Alabama and her experience going to the library as a young black girl in 1959. You noted that your personal birthright was rebellion. So I mentioned that to ask... What were the things in your upbringing or heritage that lent itself to that and storytelling? I think I also mentioned that I was raised by someone who speaks out against injustice, speaks out against things not being okay, no matter the cost. You know, that cost her being able to live in Alabama, though. She got to move to Chicago, which is, of course, a much better place. So I think my mother always being very outspoken, being incredibly involved in so many different things, her church being one of them, just just being the volunteer kind of person, I think really contributed to to that for me. And, you know, my brother, who is no longer with us, my late brother was one of the first Black bloggers in the country, founded a blog called Uppity Negro, I want to say in the late 90s, probably Aaron started that. And so in addition to always knowing I wanted to be a journalist, like I was the kind of nerd who was on the school newspaper in high school and worked at the college paper and all of the things. In addition to being that kind of nerd, I had these other people in my family who were doing storytelling, including also my sister who went to school for screenwriting. So I think the idea of the power of stories has really always been with me. So you and I have similar career lengths, I think. You graduated college in 1997. You've had a lot of different jobs. We only ran few through a few of them. What among the earlier things, pre-Chicago Reader, were most meaningful to you? And what were the biggest things that you took from them? Probably the most meaningful job for me. Pre-Reader was the Associated Press. I was an AP reporter for six and a half years in the Chicago Bureau. Got to cover any number of things as a breaking news person. And learned so much about writing quickly learning to put together narrative arcs really quickly and really comprehensively, how to interview people well enough to get quick quotes quickly. You know, I hate to say it that way, but it's true. And just, yeah, the power of speed and, you know, also having time, being able to write stories quickly and in the background, always have enter having enterprise stories running and having longer term things that I was working on. So that experience was really transformative for me. It was the break I needed. I had been a copy editor before that. 
and I, I don't, as you're, if you've been in the industry the same time I have, you know that copy editors get pigeonholed and it's like, why would we ever let you off the copy desk? No, no, get back, you know, get back to the night shift. Actually, all right. So going back to that, can you remember going back to those days? Like, did you really enjoy it? Did you feel like, you know, this is, this is it for me. This is the path I'm taking the rest of my, you know, the rest of my professional career. I knew that I wasn't going to stay at the AP forever. So right before the AP, I had gone back to grad school for magazine publishing, essentially learning how to launch my own magazine. And then I went and did the exact opposite, which was working for a wire service. So I knew that at some point I wanted to put my very, very, very expensive grad degree to use. So as much as I loved the AP and as much as I learned there, I knew it wasn't going to be my forever job, which is why when I left that I founded Rebellious when I left there. And then, of course, I had another full time job. Yeah, I knew it wasn't it wasn't going to be for my forever home. You're a story editor for the 19th now, and we'll talk about some of your other jobs towards the the back end of the podcast. And independent, the 19th is an independent nonprofit newsroom reporting at the intersection of gender, politics, and policy. We've had a reporter on in the past, Marielle Padilla. She talked about being a general assignment reporter. But what does a story editor do? So, story editor is a new job at the 19th. So I started last June, and it is a kind of everything. It's a kind of a catch-all editor. They realized that they had more reporting power than they had editors to edit those pieces. So this is a catch-all editor. So I, some of my colleagues have beats that they cover. You know, so we have somebody who's the politics editor. We have the breaking news editor who Marielle reports to. I have three reporters whose beats are very disparate. So education, LGBTQ, and caregiving. Um, and I, I don't know if we'll have more story editors. I'm the only one with this title now, but it really was a way to add more editing power to the roster. So on a day-to-day basis, like, what do you do? So I am fielding pitches for my reporters. I'm editing their stories. I am editing other people's stories. We don't have a copy desk at the 19th. We read, we back read each other's copy. So I am doing that. I am incredibly passionate about DEI issues. So I'm working on things that are not my job that I'm really passionate about. I coordinated all of our Black History Month coverage, for instance, and I'm really just trying to be a support system for reporters in the newsroom, specifically reporters of color, and then other like misfits, like I identify as a misfit, and that every every newsroom, I don't care how ambitious your mission, has a dominant culture, and there are people who fit within that dominant culture and people who don't, and so I try to be a resource for people who don't and who maybe feel a little out on the the margins. What's an example of a misfit? I mean, I think a misfit is somebody who maybe didn't come from a super big mainstream newsroom. We have a lot of people at the 19th that we have this, this amazing brain trust of talent. A lot of folks who came from really big mainstream newsrooms, not everybody did, not everybody wanted to. So not that everybody who has that background is a misfit, but I feel like that's an example of somebody. I think, you know, we are fortunate to have a lot of folks of color and not that that makes you a misfit, but the dominant culture is not, is not that, right? Um, Across the industry, LGBTQ. yeah. Exactly, right? Like being trans or non-binary, like I think we have a lot of folks who are newer, neurodiverse on staff who are like super open about that and share resources. And I think those are the things that make you maybe not a misfit, but not not as comfortably sitting within the dominant culture. Gotcha. So I'm looking at the front page. This is from February 1st and the coverage that you had, Tyree Nichols' funeral, 
the changes to the AP African American Studies courses, a poll showing Americans don't know if abortion is legal in their state. Further down the page, there was a piece on a law passed to lower prison phone rates, an interview with Congresswoman Nancy Mace, a piece on Joe Biden prioritizing federal judges that are women of color. There's a graph with that that really tells the story. There are many other pieces too. There are, I know specifically the, the DeSantis piece you had a, a hand in. Like, so what's the order, I guess, of the things that you do when, when uh, in terms of de- developing a piece? Oh, in terms of developing a piece, sure. So Nadra wrote that story. Nadra is one of my reporters and covers education. Of course, is really interested in what is all of the things happening in Florida, <laughs> education-wise, and really wanted to look at this issue of AP African-American studies and one of the conversations that we have a lot at the 19th, and I don't know if Marielle spoke to this too, and it's an ongoing, it's an evolving conversation about what is a 19th story? What, what is a gender policy and politics story? And do stories that are just about race, for instance, fit into that? If you are a Black reporter, as I am, a Black queer reporter, can I write about issues of Blackness And is that a 19th story? Because I'm a Black female person who's interested in that. We're having these conversations all the time. And kind of how we got into the AP African-American Studies story for now is that Governor DeSantis also questioned whether or not queer theory should be involved in African-American studies. Like, and of course was very pejorative about it, but that was kind of our way in. So Nadra interviewed a lot of Black and queer and both Black and queer activists and advocates and educators to get their take on what this meant and what this means. And we had a draft of that story actually before the college board issued the new kind of curriculum. And then after, you know, the story that you saw on the site is the one that we put together after and Nadra is very fast at pivoting these stories. And so it ended up being a reaction story to the college board's decision, which I think is just a really powerful story. Uh, Marielle did bring it up in regards to it was coverage of the January 6th hearings and Cassidy Hutchinson and talking about if I don't know if if I remember the piece the way that she ended the piece essentially explained why it was a 19th piece that she was you know that she was the one who wiped the ketchup off of the walls in President Trump's office so yeah so that that has that has been brought up before so what's your editing style I try to be very collaborative and I try to be really hands-off. To me, we hired the people we hired because they bring a unique unique perspective and they have lived experience and they have a voice that we value. And so I try to keep that as much as possible. I try to do very, very, very little rewriting. I find I most often end up moving things around, but I'm not going to change the way you've said something. And not every editor agrees with that. I get it, but it's like, you know, I worked for a wire service where that was not, at the time that I worked there was not the come from. And it was like, we're going to make every story sound like the same person wrote it. Like that is the goal of the AP that any, anywhere in the world, you can tell an AP story because it came out of the AP machine. And that is not the kind of journalism I wanted to do. And that I want to do, and I want people to read a story and be like, oh my God, I bet Nadra wrote that. I bet Kate wrote that. I bet Sarah wrote that. And to just know maybe even from the headlines. So 
to me, people's lived experience and perspective is really important. Can I ask what you think, having been there since last year, about how the 19th is developing? I find it really exciting. I think it's evolving its ideas of how we cover race and ethnicity and disability and LGBTQ issues. We now have, I think I mentioned two LGBTQ plus reporters. We just, we had one when I joined. And I think we're really leaning into what we refer to as the asterisk. So the 19th, if you look at our logo, there's this multicolored asterisk and we are named for the 19th amendment. And the asterisk represents the fact that not all women got the right to vote with the 19th amendment. Women of color, black women did not get the right to vote. We weren't talking about gender identity at the time. We weren't talking about LGBTQ issues at the time. So I feel like this next year is about growth and about sustainability and about really leaning into that asterisk. How do we do that better? And what what are some things that you think you might do? I What I am hoping we do is really try to think about the asterisk as we're pitching stories and as we're formulating them so that it's not on the back end, oh, well, do they have statistics for non-binary people? Or, oh, well, what about Black queer people here? Or what about disability? Or what about age? That we're in the conceiving of stories or thinking, okay, you almost have a checklist in your mind of, okay, how, how am I how does my story intersect with all of these other things so that we're not just writing about cis white women, cis white straight women? So that's instructive, I would think, to just about any journalism industry, any journalism website, like whether it's sports or politics or finance or whatever, that you have kind of an overarching vision, which as you're explaining, this this asterisk is that, that belongs at the heart of everything that you're doing. That's what it, it sounds like to me. Let me ask about the Chicago Reader, if I can. When you started, there was only one non-white person on staff. Within three years, you doubled the staff size and got to 40% in both people of color and LGBTQ. How did you do that? I wish I could take complete credit for that, but of course I can't. So I was brought into the Reader by Tracy Bame, who, if you haven't had her on, you absolutely should because she's such a badass. Tracy is the co-founder of the Windy City Times in Chicago, which is one of the longest running queer papers in the country. And Tracy is incredibly committed to diversity and gave me a shot as a reporter 23 years ago now. And we stayed in touch and she pulled me into the reader, as I said, and she was very committed to growing the number of people of color and pulling from her own networks, which of course are full of queer people, which is how we got so many queer people, frankly, but also a lot of queer people of color. And so we were just really intentional about it and we made a point of it and we didn't shy away from it and we were very explicit about it. And I think people get very skittish about that, about saying, oh, well, we really want to make sure we hire a person of color for this role. And we're not discriminating, but we're being intentional. And I think that Tracy is someone who is very committed to it. This kind of brings us to another thing that I had read that you wrote about, yeah, but and the role that that played in your career. And that ties into, I think, essentially what you're just talking about. Can you explain? Yeah, but. I read that so long ago. I almost probably 10 years ago. So thank you for finding that. It was, that was an essay I wrote, a column I wrote right about that the goalposts kept moving for me in journalism. 
like here, okay, Karen, here are the things that you need to do to get better shifts or to get promoted or to get a raise or to be, to get more prestigious assignments. Here are the things you need to do. And then I would do them. It was like, yeah, but, and there would just always be some reason why it wasn't good enough. And I just realized over time, nothing I do as a black queer woman is ever going to be good enough. And I think it's a James Baldwin quote about like, just something about like, there's nothing more dangerous than a person who has nothing to lose. And that's how I started to feel in journalism. It's been so liberating. Like nothing I do is ever going to be good enough for you. So I'm going to make it good enough for me. And essentially you talked about moving the goalposts. It sounds like at the reader that for all those people who had had the goalposts moved and moved and moved and moved, that you brought them back to where they should be. Hopefully during my time. Yes, that was, that was a goal. Certainly. What, what published pieces are you most proud of from your time at The Reader? Ooh, we did some essays on, in 2020, I brought a bunch of Black writers together to talk about George Floyd and to talk about how the that summer of unrest was going for them. I'm really proud of how that piece turned out. We, for a bulk of my time at The Reader, had an amazing investigative report, reporter, Maya Dukmasova, and she wrote a story about evictions. I mean, Maya wrote a lot of stories about evictions, but the huge one was about this company called Pangea. I was not directly involved with that story, but I'm super, super proud of it because I got to be editor-in-chief and got to read it, and it's just a beautiful piece of reporting. And anything written by Adam Rhodes when I was at The Reader, I'm super proud of. I got to be Adam's editor. You've talked to Adam. Like, what a delight. I just, I feel like, Adam is constantly coming up with story ideas that are so unique and their perspective on them is so interesting and brings in all of like their lived experience. So anything by Adam, I mean, there are just a ton of stories that we did at the reader that I'm really proud of. Yeah. that That's a particularly good interview that we did with Adam a while back. Tell us about Rebellious and your role as chief rebel. Oh, Rebellious. It's my passion project. It's my baby. I founded it, it'll be 11 years ago now. So we launched on March 8th of 2012 and I launched it as I was leaving the AP. And it was really this opportunity, has been this opportunity to tell women's stories and now a larger, an expansion of gender, just not just women, but their stories in their own way, in their own voices. I came from the AP where, you know, you get a great interview with somebody, great quotes and have this wonderful narrative crafted and then it would go through the AP machine right and I just wanted to be able to I wanted for people to be able to speak directly to audiences I wanted to be able to be that person who decides what goes out and what doesn't and so we have evolved so much over the years right now we are really doing a lot of so music coverage live music coverage live music is back thankfully we do theater we do other arts and entertainment in Chicago and then we have a grant to cover reproductive justice. Thank you, Field Foundation of Illinois, for renewing our grant to cover sexual health and reproductive justice. So we'll have more stories rolling out this year about that as well. What would 2023 you tell 2012, 13, the per, at the point of origin for the idea about making something that's long lasting and being able to balance it with all the other things that you've done? I would tell 
2012 Karen to start a nonprofit, to launch as a nonprofit. We are we have a nonprofit arm. We're not a 501c3. We're a nonprofit in Illinois. The Feminist Two Media Foundation is our nonprofit. I would tell her that. I would tell her to write a business plan. Like, <laughs> not mapped out on a napkin. Yeah. Those are two big ones. So that that's good advice though for someone that is has a future vision of doing something like what you've done. I I get the feeling you just you just alluded to it a second ago. I get the feeling that you like being in charge, that you're someone I'm someone who wasn't meant to be in charge of things, definitely. But I get the feeling that you like being in charge of things. What do you like? Oh, I like giving people opportunities. That's my favorite part of it. And of being the kind of boss and being the kind of leader that I always wish I had. I've had a ton of bad bosses in my journalism career. 25 years in journalism will yield you a lot of bad bosses. And I have learned, as you, as you well know, you're nodding. I have learned more from those bad bosses than I have from the amazing ones I had. And I just really always want to be that person, that safe person in the newsroom. I always want to be the person who treats people the way that I wish that I had always been treated. So we've talked to NLGJA members in the past. You're on the board. What are the goals for the organization for 2023? Ooh, sustainability, the student conference, which is coming up in March, being in person again in Philly. I will not steal the thunder of our board president, Ken Miguel, about his plans for the organization, but they're really exciting. And he even, he was elected in September. And even since then, he's done so much work in reaching out to the other affinity organizations, reaching out to other organizations and just really building bridges and coming up with some really exciting projects. So I won't steal his thunder, but we have some really good stuff. What are the things that you're seeing in coverage of LGBTQ issues that's a positive and what are some things that you're seeing that's problematic? Mm. Coverage positives. I am gratified to see more people covering the terrible legislation that we're seeing in some of the Southern states. I, I feel like we have to cover these things. Otherwise, that's how people get away with these terrible things. You know, I, I'm glad that we have so, so few reporters covering state houses now that I am glad that at least that legislation is being covered. I wish there was more of it, of course. And maybe I'm biased because Orion, the reporter at the 19th who covers this is so good at it. So that is a positive. And I am, you know, is both a good thing and a bad thing, right? That the mainstream press covers LGBTQ plus issues more. I, I worked in the gay press and at the time we really were the only ones telling positive stories about the queer community. Now everybody's telling quote unquote positive stories about the queer community and you know, it's it's lessened the power. Over time, it lessened the power of the queer press. I think it's making a resurgence. But so I'm gratified that more folks are telling more stories about legislation and more stories really about queer people holistically, that we are not just, that they're not just talking about us when there's a problem, that we're talking about queer parenting and all of the different facets of our lives. What's realistic in terms of like the next year or so in terms of steps that can be taken to be even better at that? Mm. Hiring more trans reporters, absolutely. Creating safety plans for those trans reporters, not just hiring them, but knowing how to keep them safe, knowing how to create policies that are respectful, listening to them about how the culture is changing and how our language needs to evolve. 
those I think are the biggest frontiers. I mean, it's really, really quickly. I moderated a panel at NLTJA last year with news leaders and someone from the audience asked what they were doing. I believe it was what to protect trans journalists and it was cricket. Only the person from the advocate answered. And there were some of the biggest news organizations in the country, in some cases in the world on that panel and no one had anything to say. So in the next year, I am hoping that changes dramatically. And is there something else about the NLGJA that you wanted to bring up that was important? I would say, again, the student project. I was a mentor for the student project. It has a special place in my heart. If anybody wants to donate or donate their time as a mentor, please consider the student project. And yes, yeah, stay tuned for an announcement for NLGJA about how we are expanding our, our mission. We will have links and such in the show notes and definitely will address that. I always ask if someone's been on the show who's been a journalist for 20 or more years, I always make it a point to ask the question, can you give your best example of learning from a mistake? I'll give mine just to balance it out, make sure we both get to give one here, that uh, in 20-ish years ago, I was asked to interview an Olympic rower. His name, I was introduced to Jason Reed. And hey, Jason Reed has this background. He's from Princeton, New Jersey. He's local to us, etc. I did the entire interview. I didn't think anything of it. I wrote the story. I was all, I was certain he was going to say it's going to be put on the refrigerator and I didn't hear from them. And the reason that I didn't hear from him was because Jason Reed spelled his last name R-E-A-D, a non-traditional spelling of Jason Reed, as opposed to E-E or E-I. And I made the mistake of presuming the spelling in of, in one of those ways. And I don't do that anymore. So there's mine. What's yours? Ooh, so this is a painful one because I did the exact same thing. I interviewed a young man for a story. I mean, it was a big, it was a big deal story for me at the time. I had a fellowship for it. And his name is Lathaniel with an L. And my brain in every interview, every conversation with him decided he was saying Nathaniel. Why would I ask him to spell Nathaniel? Totally not his name. Lathaniel. Horrifying. Okay. But it's a commonality. Happens all the time. Always ask for the spelling in every possible situation that you can. There's a lesson. Well, and this was pre-Medill, of course. That would have been a Medill F, and I would never have done it again after that. So, yes. <laughs> So you also host a podcast, just to round things out here. Of course, I'm not okay. It's about mental health. And it feels like, from the one episode that I listened to, that you're eavesdropping on two friends chatting. One recent episode was advocating for yourself, whether as a patient with a doctor, or if you're a top performer at work. Two different worlds, but essentially the same principle. You're advocating for yourself. What do you do to take care of your mental health? Ooh, I have an amazing therapist who I see weekly on Zoom now, of course. My fiance is a psychologist, and the aside on that is that I told the universe that the next person I dated needed to be in therapy, and I got a therapist in therapy. So, okay, thanks, universe. I'll see you. I'll see you. Real funny. I journal. I meditate. I mix those things up all the time. I think it's one of those things, like, I'm not a parent, but I hear parents say, like, the thing that works to get their kid to go to sleep or to do whatever changes all the time. As soon as you figure it out, it changes. And that's how I feel about mental health. Like the things that worked six months ago are not going to work now. And it's something you have to constantly be monitoring. And I try to really be very aware of it and to really just switch things up as I need to. 
What's your advice for someone that listens to this episode and hears about your work at The Reader, that hears about what you do at the 19th, that hears about Rebellious, that hears about the podcast and all these different things that you do, and that person says, I want to I want to do something like that? Why do you want to do any of these things? I would say find someone who is doing the thing that you want to be doing and ask them to talk to you about it. I, journalists either love talking about themselves or loathe it. And I would say to find that chatty person who loves talking about it and who loves giving advice, solicited or not. And there is a person in the world who has the job that you want, that you think you want, and go talk to that person, you know, roll up to them at a conference, join a professional organization. I joined NLGJA 23 years ago. It's one of the best decisions I've made in my entire career. And just get to know people. I would say that's the biggest one. Is there any other advice that you'd offer to a young journalist? When you and I started in journalism, I'm sure we both got told that if you left, you could never come back. <laughs> right? If you leave journalism, it's over for you. It's a one-way door. It's over. And I will tell you... I've left journalism multiple times and I've still gotten to where I am. And then I have learned so much working outside of journalism about how to manage people, about how to lead, how to communicate well, how to be organized, that work-life balance is the thing that we can all achieve. I am so grateful that I left and that I've come back. So I don't know if that is still, if people are still being told that anymore, but I would just mention that you can come home again. So a two-parter to close here. We always do this at the end of each episode, but with a twist for Black History Month. Besides Ida B. Wells and Nicole Hannah-Jones, who've gotten many mentions here, is there a Black journalist in history that you would like to salute for their great work? Yes. I'm going to get her name wrong, but I'm going to endeavor. So the 19th has a fellowship program for HBCU grads, recent grads and alums. And it is named for Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, who is considered the mother of African-American journalism. And I didn't know much about her before this fellowship program was created, to be honest. And the more I learn about her, the more inspired I am by her story. And the, I had a meeting with the fellows today who are going to be writing about her on the anniversary of her death. And she is definitely someone who does not get enough credit. She predates Ida B. Wells. And just not only was a journalist, but all, did all of these other really noteworthy things for a woman of her time, especially a Black woman of her time. All right. And then the last question. Is there a Black journalist that you'd like to salute because we should be reading more from them? I have so many. So any of the Black staff at the 19th, of course, really anyone. And So I am hoping he's writing a new book. There is a visual journalist who used to work for the New York Times named Jamal Jordan, who I know is teaching now. He served as the mentor for the NLGJA student project last time. He has a book called Queer Love and Color that is beautiful. It's both interviews and these like really beautiful portraits of couples. Oh, I just love that book so much. I Like I said, I hope he's working on a new one. Books to read. I hope Derek Clifton is still writing. These are Chicago folks. Um, if you're not already reading The Tribe, even if you're not based in Chicago, it will be fascinating read. So The Tribe was founded by two Northwestern grads, two young Black women who originally founded it to be, to re, how do they say, like transforming the narrative of Black millennials in Chicago. And they have since changed it to all of Black Chicago. 
they are a darling of Chicago media, but they are really, I think, showing the rest of us about how this, how journalism can work. I will also mention City Bureau based in Chicago. They have a fellowship program. They produce wonderful work. I'm sure you've talked to City Bureau folks. And the last one I will say is they're not, it's not a journalist, it's a publication, Scalawag, obsessed with Scalawag and the work that they do. Absolutely. They're on my list to talk to. So. <laughs> oh my gosh, Sierra and yeah. I can't, yeah, just their whole staff. I love them. Karen Hawkins, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck in your many different pursuits. We appreciate you joining us for an episode of the Journalism Salute. Thank you for having me. You can learn more about the 19th with the asterisk at 19thnews.org. You can learn more about the Association of LGBTQ Journalists at nlgja.org. And you can learn more about Rebellious and Karen's podcast at rebelliousmagazine.com. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.